Well, now we're jumping back into the book of Romans. Uh, we've been in the series for, oh, I guess, a couple of months now. Um, and we're heading towards the end of chapter 5. Um, before I read the passage, though, I recognize that Paul, he's got the, the author of the book, he's got his uh, professor hat on again. Um, and so when he talks, he kinds to talk at a very high level. He's, he's quite intellectual, uh, which is fine for some of us, but for people like me, it can get a little confusing. So I've switched up a little bit, and we're going to do a, a slightly different version of the Bible that's a little bit easier to understand as we move our way through from chapter 5, verse 12. So we're going to read uh, here. You'll see it up on the screen. When Adam, the first human being, sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin, which is rebellion against God, Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even uh, before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not dis disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol a representation of Christ who is yet to come. Now, before we move on, I have to kind of pause here because we can get kind of tripped up a little bit in some of the stuff that Paul is saying here. He's, he's talking about, you know, Adam sinned and everyone sinned except they didn't sin because there was no law, but they sinned anyway and death was there anyway. And it's, it can get very, very confusing. But I want to sort of uh, put us back a few weeks. If you were here, we talked um, towards the beginning of the series about the difference between um, specific revelation and general revelation. Does anyone remember us talking about that? No? <laughs> That's good. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to take that personally at all. It's fine. Uh, so specific revelation is this idea that God has given a specific commandment, a specific order, or something. He's said something specific to us. He's piped up, and he's actually said something or written something down. Yeah. So Adam got a very specific instruction not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, which he did anyway, because uh, he's pretty useless with that. And then we got specific revelation when um, the law was given to Moses, and there's all these tablets of all of these different laws of ways that we needed to follow God, which... We didn't do because we we're pretty useless at that. And then we also now have in our Bible specific revelation because this the Bible is God's words to us. It tells us who God is and how we are supposed to live, which we don't do very well because we're pretty useless at that as well. Anyway, that's beside the point. That's specific revelation. So Adam had specific revelation to, um, to, to not eat, which he did, and then Moses got the law, right? Does that make sense? Well, the thing is, between Adam and Moses is actually quite a big period of time, nearly 2,500 years, depending on the way you date things, um, of, of no real specific instructions from God, or very few and far between. Uh, God may have made a specific instruction to one person or another, but generally speaking, there wasn't a lot of specific instructions, so there weren't any laws that people were breaking. Therefore, it wasn't considered sin, and yet they were still under the subject of death. They were still sinning, is what Paul says. Which it brings us to the other type of revelation that we talked about in chapter 1, which is called general revelation. This is when God communicates to us about who He is through things like creation. Not specific words, but the idea that we live in such an incredible world 
that it just screams at us that there is a God and we need to pay attention. Now, between Adam and the law of Moses, we have 2,500 years of God showing himself through creation, through some amazing things that happen. And people were supposed to be able to recognize that was God. And yet, guess what? They didn't because they were pretty useless at that as well. So they rejected what God had shown them of himself. That's why Paul says sin reigned even from Adam to the time of Moses. Does that kind of make sense? Come and see me afterwards if it doesn't, because I'm not quite sure I got that straight in my head either. But the point is, the point of this passage is actually not so much any of that stuff, but the point was that Adam became this poster child for sin and death coming into the world. All right, Because Adam messed up. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that. He brought death and he brought sort of this, this sin and this, this sort of messed up world that came through him. So he has kind of become famous for being an idiot. Now, they say all press is good press, but I'm not so sure about that. I, I don't necessarily would want to be known for that. But this passage is not about Adam. It's about Jesus. See, because there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, to being separated from God. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace of, uh, of, and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. See how he's setting up this parallel between what Adam did and what Jesus did. Yes, and he sums it up. Adam's one sin brings condemnation, brings judgment for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. All right, so Paul paints this beautiful picture, doesn't he? He paints this beautiful picture of this parallel between the total stuff-up Adam by the way, I'm not pointing to the side of the room intentionally when I reference stuff up, but you are now going to be represent the stuff up. Well done. Between Adam, the stuff up, and, and, and the total awesomeness of Jesus. Good job, guys. I don't know who you are in the middle. I don't know. We're somewhere in between. We see, he paints this amazing picture that on one hand, you've got Adam, who because of one thing he did wrong, brought death to all humanity. But then because of one thing that Jesus did, he brings life to everybody. He hits the kill switch and undoes and fixes everything all in one fell swoop. That's the story of the gospel. And it's an amazing story, isn't it? It's this amazing thing that we can hold on to, that we can have hope that even though we inherited a messed up world because of Adam, but because of Jesus, everything's going to be okay. 
we're going to be fine. We can have assurance. That's the whole point of this passage, is to give us assurance that God is capable of rescuing us. And that's great. And it's this beautiful, little, positive, simple passage of the Bible that gives us confidence in who God is. And that would pretty much just wrap it up um, for the message for this week. Except, however... This passage, summed up by this verse 18 here, has led, has become something of an intersection passage for a couple of different ideas or beliefs uh, that have created a fair amount of division and bickering in the church uh, since the third century, actually. So because of this one verse, there's been a couple of different ideas that have created some problems within the church, some things that people have been disagreeing with. So I want to run through those real quick. The first is this idea of original sin, which put simply, it says that because Adam's sin, every human born after him is born sinful, which means they have sin already on their record. They have Adam's sin implanted there, and they are therefore, under God's judgment, separated from God. Now, most agree um, that there was, we inherited a sinful nature, a desire to sin from Adam, that he kind of unlocked or opened the floodgates, and, and then we kind of have this propensity towards doing wrong. But original sin would say that actually there is a, a, a stain on who we are, even from the moment of conception and birth. All right? And then on top of that, we add all of our own mistakes as well. Now, this belief is actually one of the primary reasons several different uh, church traditions will baptize infants. You may have seen this, especially as, uh, famously in the Catholic Church. They baptize infants because there is this fear that if we, we, there's this attempt to save these children, these babies, um, as soon as they can, so that they can experience the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. Does that, does that kind of make sense as, as a summary of what that idea is? Now, the other idea... Um, which kind of sits on the other end of the spectrum, uh, but is connected, is called universalism. And universalism is the basic idea that because what Paul says in this passage, that, that the forgiveness comes to everybody, that through Jesus' act, everybody is saved, is the idea that actually everyone is going to go to heaven eventually, even if they aren't technically called Christians in this world, that everybody will eventually come into that right relation with God because of what Jesus did. So you can see how this passage sort of um, gives, gives rise to a couple of these um, different ideas. And they, they may, you may not care very much about either of these two things. It's not going to necessarily impact your, your coffee order on a Monday morning. But it does, however, have something of an impact in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we understand who God is, and the way that we understand the way that we interact with each other. Especially, you know, if you have kids. If you're having a baby, what do I do? If you have a, a non-Christian friend, how much effort do we put into um, reaching them with the gospel? These are sorts of some of the things. So I want to, as much as I just love to soak in the beautifulness of this parallel between Adam and Jesus and just have this nice moment, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to kind of dive in a little bit and just explore what does this passage say about these two uh, different issues. Before I jump into that, though, I do want to say something very, very clearly. And this is an ethos of Church Northwest, is that there are going to be people in this room 
um, who believe different things. Shocking, isn't that? That we as different human beings have different ideas about what's in the Bible, about different um, what we call doctrines or beliefs. And this is not going to be a place where I am trying to shut the door on someone for what they believe and then reject them because they think differently. Nor do I want to shut the door on any honest, good conversation. I believe what really we need to be doing as a church and what we try to promote at Church Northwest is uh, that, we, that we explore some of these things together with our Bibles open, with a view to what God has told us about himself, and that we would help each other take our next step towards Jesus through some of these discussions. That's why we have small groups. That's why we encourage people to connect with each other, to have conversations, grab a coffee, dive into some of these things with each other. However, I also believe that I have a job as that God has given me as a teacher of the Bible to take the words that he has given us and to the best of my ability and to my best understanding and convictions, teach what God is saying through some of these passages. Okay, So if I say something and you go, oh, I can't believe you said that, don't hold that against me too much. All right, um, That doesn't mean that I don't like you or that you shouldn't like me. Um, it means that this is my best understanding and this is what I'm going to be teaching. And maybe this is the position that the church will hold on certain things, but that does not mean that there is division necessary within us. Is that, is that fair? Can we, can we take that? Good. All right. Well, Charlotte agrees. That's good. All right. So the first thing I want to look at is this idea of original sin. And this, this right there from the verse verse, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. And looking at that verse, it seems pretty clear that because Adam, we're all doomed. And again, we just cannot thank that man enough. And by the way, Eve, totally part of this as well. You know, she's kind of got a pass in this particular passage, but we know, all right, first. That's all I'm saying. That's the only word I want to... I'm just <laughs> open another can of worms. Woo! All right, but because of Adam and his lovely wife, we are all doomed. We all stand separated from God. And then you pair that with a verse like uh, Psalm... 51.5, where David is saying, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Well, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? So we have, with those things, you have this pretty solid argument, this pretty solid idea that from birth, uh, from this even conception, that, that we are separated from God. So there is that argument at play here. And that's why it leads to many traditions, like I said, baptizing infants, and other people living in fear of what may happen to a child that perhaps for some tragic reason they lose before having a chance to baptize them or a miscarriage or something like that. So it can have a very a big impact. Now, like I said, I know there'll be people in this room who do believe in this concept, and I know the Catholic Church is very strong on this as well. So I don't want to slam the door. I don't want to argue heavily. In fact, I'm not even going to argue against the concept of original sin. Because I believe this passage steps in front of that argument and provides a different perspective. Because what we want to do here is we want to understand how this passage impacts what that might mean. Put it this way. The intention of what Paul is trying to say is not to draw attention to Adam's mistake, but to Jesus' solution. Yes? Look at this verse. This Adam's sin brings condemnation for everybody, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. There is an intentional and powerful parallel that is being set up between what Adam did wrong and what Jesus did right. The results of Adam's sin and the results of Jesus' sacrifice. Yes? 
We got that parallel? So therefore, if there is original sin, in whatever form that takes, if that is a result of Adam's sin, we have to also take that the solution has been provided by Jesus. In that, this is what uh, one biblical scholar I read called original grace. That Jesus intercepts the stain or the sin of Adam reaching children, if we, if we need an analogy in our minds, and he intercepts that with grace. So whoever was standing in condemnation now stands forgiven. Whatever Adam gave, Jesus takes away. That makes sense? So that means we no longer, even if original sin is a doctrine, is what was happening, Jesus has fixed it. So I believe, and again, happy to have conversations, happy for people to disagree with me, and, and we can have a good, good chat about it. But my understanding of this passage is it gives us an assurance we no longer have to fear for our little ones. We no longer have to fear for the baby who has born and is lost before a chance for us to, to baptize them. In fact, I believe the, the, the way the Bible describes baptism is it's a choice of the person, not a choice of someone else anyway. So I'm not sure that baptism would have done what we wanted it to do, if that makes sense. That's another can of worms. We can jump in there and, and look at that another time. But the point is, if Adam gave all babies sin, Jesus gives all babies righteousness. Does that make sense? Isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that a relief? Isn't that a beautiful thing? However, that kind of lends itself very quickly into the other end of that spectrum, which is this idea that God has given a right relationship to everybody. There is a right relationship, new life for everyone. If Adam gave death to all, and Jesus takes away what Adam gave, then life is for all, yes? So, hang on, um, does that mean universalism is correct? Because we can't just say that Adam led everybody into sin and caused death for everybody, but Jesus gives some life and, and some, because the words are the same. It is, it is intentionally structured that what Adam gave us, Jesus took away. So does that mean everyone is saved then? All right. Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm going to find my notes because this is important. All right. Okay. This is why an increasingly number, increasing, increasing number of people, especially in the last couple of centuries, have started to take on this idea of universalism in some form or another, that there is no hell as we understand it, but rather that there is even after maybe a temporary time of, of judgment or punishment, that there is this eternal connection for all people. Because of this very, very verse. I've got to tell you, it's a pretty compelling case, isn't it? It's a pretty compelling idea, and one that holds a lot of appeal. It seems to fit the way that we understand God's love. We find it hard to marry this idea of hell with this idea of a loving God. And so this seems to make sense to God's love. And again, I'm not looking to shut anyone down and, and, and we want to explore these ideas. However, I do think there is a couple of observations that we need to make that will help us understand this idea of universalism. And the first is we can sit in this passage in Romans and we can see an idea blossoming in these words and it can make a lot of sense. However, we also have to step back 
out of the book to see how this passage fits with everything else in the Bible, right? Context is very, very important. And so while you can look at this verse and say, yep, no, it's absolutely right, new life for everyone, when we start looking at the way God describes the relationship between God and man, especially after Jesus has come, right? Because that's important. Because if Jesus came and then he fixed everything, how does God talk about the way that we relate to him after that point? And what we're seeing while there is constantly talk of, of salvation available to anybody, there is time after time after time and again a call for people to, thank you, Dan, repent, to turn away, to turn from and towards God so that they may receive salvation. So there is language in there that there is something we must do in order to escape the judgment that God has because of all of the stuff that we've done. Even in Revelation, especially in Revelation, in fact, when you go and you start looking at the end story, when you look at the end of time, and Jesus is painting this picture of what it's going to be like in judgment, which is an indicator in and of itself. And he says there is this distinction between, yeah, there's this book of life. And those who are written in the book of life, yay, good for you. You get a first-class ticket to heaven. Everything's hunky-dory. However, for those who are not in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. That's not nice. It's actually a very disturbing story. Now, some people, and, and we do have to recognize that Revelation is full of figurative language, okay? It is, so we do not have to expect a literal lake of fire, uh, although that would look pretty cool. But we do not have to, to, to visualize that. But we cannot get around that the, the figurative language represents something, and that something is punishment for those who have rejected God, right? Now, again, some would say, okay, so there is that temporary punishment, but eventually we all end up in God's care. And I would love to believe that. That sounds really, really, really nice. However, the language does not really support that. It is an eternal language. And there is no description of an event happening after that where everyone is called back in. Now, I know that's a lot to process, and I'm not assuming any of you know any of it about any of this stuff. So if you have any questions, your confusion, please come and see us, talk to us about that. But for those of us who have grown up in the Christian faith, there is this understanding there. All right, so coming back to the passage in Romans then, we still have this problem, don't we? Because the language definitely says, and we just talked about how whatever Adam brought into the world, Jesus takes away. So how can we marry those two ideas? How can there be this concept that if, if Adam brought in death and destruction and, and, and sin and Jesus took all of that away, why are we still separated from God? Right? That's a good question. And it comes down to this understanding of two types of sin. Um, and in the Bible, and again, the Bible College crew over here will know all about this sort of stuff. Um, but there is called what we talked about before, original sin. This is the sin that Adam passed down onto us. And whatever form that took, whatever what that was, we have this taintedness and separation because of him. Jesus fixed that. However, we also have this thing called personal sin. You see, because while we like to blame Adam and Eve for all of the things that have gone wrong in the world, right? And they mess things up. And if, like, if we were in the garden, we never would have eaten that fruit because we're perfect and they're terrible. Obviously, we know this is not true, right? We have also added our own sins to our own record. 
So there's this idea that Jesus brings life for everyone. We get a fresh start, a clean slate. Because of Jesus, he has removed the curse of Adam and he has given us a fresh start, which we then take and we completely poop the bed with, right? Because we, we have our own issues, our own mistakes, our own rebellions, our own things that we do wrong that separate us from God. So while we have this fresh start, this beautiful gift from God, we still need an accounting for what we have done. And there is this moment in our lives, what we often call the age of accountability, where we, where we sort of move from this innocence of children, right? Not that I've ever met an innocent child, but this innocence of children where we don't really understand what's going on to this point where we get it, right? Where we understand, you know what, I'm doing something against God here. And I become responsible for everything that I do in that point. And because everybody from that point has messed things up, we are still in need of, that re- of, of repenting, of coming back to Jesus. So that gift is still there. And he's still, it's enough. But we have to choose that. Does that make sense? All right, good. Whew. All right, so that's a lot of complicated stuff. And it's a lot heavier than you were expecting on a Sunday morning. Lucky you. Uh, I recognize there's going to be a lot of different reactions. Some of you are going to just disagree with me outright. That's fine. That's, that's your prerogative. You're, you're welcome to do that, and you're still welcome here. You're still welcome to be part of our community. Other people are just going to agree with me and say, I don't really care, so sure, that's fine. Whatever you say, okay, that's fine too. But for those of you in the middle, for those of you who are wrestling with this, who are sort of kind of trying to piece this together, I want to offer myself and, and the other leaders and elders of our church, come and talk to us. Come and chat with us. Ask questions. Ask each other questions. Join a small group. Bring it up in those sorts of spaces. Let's figure this out together. I know I'm not perfect, and my understanding of what I read in the Bible is not necessarily right up there with Jesus. It's like way down there, you know. But this is my conviction. This is what I believe. And I'm open to having conversations with people. So let's, let's do that. But wherever you are with it, Whatever your stance on those two particular issues, on universalism or an original sin or anything like that, what I really want to do is to draw you back into the core of what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage. His desire is to show us that no matter how big the mess sin makes in our lives, no matter how much Adam's sin and ours no matter how big a mess we make, no matter how ruined our life seems to be, no matter how widespread the infection has gone through our lives and through our world, Jesus is completely able to switch that up with one act. He blew up the mothership, and it all just tied up the loose ends. One act saved us all and can save us all. It has the power to wipe out all of the sin that Adam threw at us, all of the sins that we added on, and all of the sins that we're going to add on because we know that we're imperfect human beings. He took care of it all. That's a reason to celebrate, is it not? Isn't that a reason to come in on a Sunday morning and give a few songs of worship to God? Isn't that worth waking up and just recognizing every day that this this is amazing God that we serve. Like, he did not have to do any of that. 
one of the things we want to do each week is to, to take what we call communion, which is a, a recognition, a reminder that um, we get to have this freedom because of what he did. And whatever, whatever has gone before, it doesn't matter. Whatever, <laughs> whatever we're about to do, he's, he's looked ahead. He's seen it, and he's forgiven it. Isn't that beautiful? So we're going to take a moment. We're going to have a little cracker, a little cup of juice that represents his body, his blood that he gave up so that we could have this. We're going to take that now. In fact, if we want to, uh, that's going to start getting passed around very, very soon. Um, and you can just take it in your own time. And there's a little um, plastic container where, uh, where you can put your cups when you're finished with them. And just take them as you will. Um, but just take some moment to truly thank God for everything that he has done. Let me pray. Lord, we know that there are a lot of confusing ideas. Um, we know that um, we have all taken passages you've given us in the Bible and, and we've gone in different directions with it. And I, I fully recognize I could totally get to heaven with you and you'd be like, well, what were you thinking? Um, and that, that I've got it completely wrong. I, I recognize that, Lord. But I just thank you that even with that, even with the mistakes we make, you've fixed it. You took care of it. Through one act, you completely wiped away everything we've done wrong. And I, it's a beautiful thing. And so we, from all different beliefs in, in, in the Bible, all different understandings, we come together and we thank you and we praise you and we relish the freedom you have given us. As in your amazing name we pray. Amen.